This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. When you think about the gig economy, you probably think of an Uber driver or the person who delivers your pizza. But even two years ago, one in seven British workers had got work through a platform. And it's not just low-wage or low-skilled jobs. GPs do it. Doctoral students at Cambridge are on teaching contracts that pay just £31 per supervision, including reading and marking. It's never been easier to hire people and never have to fire them. And it's a model that's taken off around the world as people have acquired smartphones. With me to talk about the gig economy phenomenon is Peter Guest, a journalist at the non-profit site Rest of World. He's just worked on a big project looking at platform work in 15 countries in the global south. Peter, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks a lot for having me. So in the UK, there was a Supreme Court ruling recently, which seemed to change the game for gig economy workers. Tell us about that. Sure. So... The Supreme Court recently ruled uh, in the UK that platform workers working for Uber in particular could be considered or should be considered workers. Worker is a specific definition in UK law, which allows a certain set of kind of uh, interactions between the company and the worker. In a sense, what it meant was when you signed on to Uber to work for the platform, you were considered working for the platform. That's very difficult for Uber because as far as they're concerned, you're only actually working for them from the moment you accept a ride to the moment you drop off a passenger. And despite that ruling, Uber drivers went on strike this autumn. Did that have any effect? Do you have the sense that Uber is taking seriously implementing this ruling? It's a very difficult question to answer. We don't really have access to the aggregate of Uber's data. Uber obviously keeps its platform very private. They can tell us and they can tell drivers that they're implementing rulings. They can say that they are providing drivers with benefits. They can say these things, but it's very difficult to actually measure that. As far as we can see, the drivers themselves, at least those drivers who are speaking to the media, those drivers who are going out and and organizing, don't consider that the ruling has been, at least the spirit of the ruling, has been uh, fully implemented. Are there efforts by gig economy workers to unionize? New groups have sprung up in the last few years that try to support and meet the needs of of people working in these different areas. That's absolutely right. And I think we are seeing that as a phenomenon right in the world right now. So you're seeing uh, Uber drivers, but also general, generally platform workers organizing, if not specifically through formal unions, which is a you know very difficult thing in some countries in some contexts, then through informal groups where they're trying to understand that their labor together has power. We like to look at them and say, this is having an impact. We like to say, you know, this, this organization presages some sort of a change in the industry, but it's very difficult to, to judge whether that's the case or not. 
what we see in a lot of countries where we operate, and particularly in the kind of countries in, in what you'd call the global south, there's a great imbalance of power between the platform and the worker. And because of the employment arrangement between the company and the worker, as you said at the top of the show, these aren't employment, the employment contracts, people can't be hired and fired in the traditional way. You can simply withdraw the privilege, as the company would see it, of working for the platform without any kind of downside to you. Plus, in, in, in countries like India, where we've looked extensively, Indonesia and others, there's such a ready supply of people willing to go onto these platforms and, and operate on them that all of the power sits in the hands of the uh, of the company itself. So while there is organization, while we are seeing walkouts and people withdrawing their labor, we're not necessarily seeing that as being a major having a major impact on the companies themselves. Because they can always find other people who will step in and do the job. Because they can find people who will step in and do the job. Because of the nature of their relationship with their, the, the workers that they have in the first place is so nebulous and is governed by such complicated structures, including the algorithms which which move uh, which you know which move the talent around, which move people around, which connect jobs to people, that it makes it very difficult. It's a moving target for anyone who's really trying to create a move a, a meaningful labour movement around this. Because what are you asking for? If you're asking for something simple, and I think one of the the, the great pieces of the the London ruling was that actually they were asking for something very simple. You know, as soon as we are working for you, you pay us. Now, in other contexts, that may not be necessarily the main problem that people are facing. It may be that they are simply not getting enough gigs. It may be that the company has created an oversupply of labor so that there are 15 workers for every one, one job, meaning that while you can theoretically earn a certain amount of money on the platform, you never will. You know, and, and these things are much more complex things to sort of build a movement around. So in some senses, the cards are all in the hands of the companies who are able to control. They have all of the data. They have most of the power. And they aren't really regulated in a way that would allow Labour to, to have a meaningful conversation and dialogue with them. So is it the case then that the law in the UK and potentially in a lot of other places, places as well needs to change because it just isn't fit for purpose in the modern era with so many of these new kinds of jobs. I mean, I think that's certainly something that a lot of regulators are looking at. And you do see this happening on the margins. I guess one of the things we'd have to think about with these platform companies is the model that they've created, right? Essentially, what this is, is a a Silicon Valley model, a model that's been incubated in Silicon Valley amongst a certain set of sort of techno-libertarian people with a certain sort of techno-libertarian mindset, right? Which is that the rules are there as a framework for you to then operate around. If you can find a clever way around them, a semantic way around them by defining yourself as a platform, by defining yourself as adjacent to the business that you're seeking to disrupt, you can then find this kind of a cheat code for capitalism, whereby you're not governed by the rules that make a company, that make a a normal company, uh, a kind of incumbent industry company, have to pay its workers properly, give employment contracts, get regulated, you know, all of these things, they can dodge them. So we've seen that not just in the platform economy. I mean, we're, we're obviously now having many conversations about the social media platforms. This is exactly the same problem that we're having here. We do not have regulations that have caught up with this sidestepping of the traditional mechanisms by which we govern companies and economies. Let's talk a bit about what the gig economy looks like in other parts of the world, because in some ways it's quite similar. People picking up a job that they find via an app and going to do it. But let's look particularly at the case of a Zimbabwean woman whom you talked to who works for the SmartMade app in South Africa. That's the cleaning services. Tell us what her working life looks like. 
So you've picked an example, actually, where, where, where we can see the real nuances of this kind of business, right? So one thing that we have to be really cautious about is to lump all companies together, all platforms together, and all jobs together. There are definitely some advantages to the gig economy, and you can see that in some of the case studies, like the one you mentioned. Now, here you have a situation where there is already a degree of, of exploitation in the labor market, right? You have disempowered people, in this case, migrant workers coming from Zimbabwe or other countries on the, around South Africa into South Africa. And they then enter what is already a kind of informal marketplace, right? Whereby they may directly be able to offer their labor to an employer. So as a maid, as a cleaner, uh, as a nanny in this instance, or they can then find a way to mediate that, that business. So in her example, she finds it relatively empowering. She says that she's able to you know, find these gigs that she wants. She's able to find clients in a way that she wants and actually earn at or around the minimum wage that's given for that industry. So her life is, is effectively, she books gigs, she, she goes, she cleans houses, she works with the client and she's comfortable to an extent. And we don't want to obviously kind of uh, impose on somebody else, somebody uh, impose a different experience on somebody from what they've told us. But we also spoke to a lot of people in a similar situation, you know, migrant workers from Zimbabwe in South Africa, who are operating in different areas of the gig economy. And what we found there is that, by and large, they, they bring their disempowerment, they bring their marginalization with them into the gig economy. They're already relatively underrepresented in the sense that they, they, they don't have, they're not able to join unions, they're, they're not able to kind of interact with local politics in a way. And so they find themselves effectively in a new form of, of, of I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't, doesn't oversell it, but they find themselves in a sense indentured. You can find yourself, for example, driving for Uber in a car that you're renting off somebody else. You can find yourself you know, driving delivery, but maybe pseudo-legally pseudo using papers that mean that when you get into an accident, you are unable to get help. You're unable to, to call the police and so on and so forth. So you know, we find within that one small migrant community in, in one country, the kind of full spectrum of experiences of the gig economy. And one of the things that you see recurrently in these case studies that mm. you put together is that people are grateful for the, for the Apple, whoever they're working for, having made the introduction. And then they say, oh, I worked for this person and they were really pleased with the job I did and I, they took my number and we agreed to, you know, that I could, I could work for them again. So it's almost like the value of these is almost in the introduction and people are pretty desperate to find a way of creating a more kind of steady regulated work once they've got that introduction and they want to do that rather than constantly being set, sent off on different jobs to different places to people whom they don't know and who they potentially might be in danger from. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's one of the great lies of the, of the platform economy. Uh, and it's possibly this was this was the case when they actually started up. That, you know, do you remember the term sharing economy, which has fallen out of use? But there was this notion that it created flexibility, and in a sense, you know, you could just log onto the app whenever you like, do a little bit of work, make a little bit of money, log off again. But in the interim, it has evolved, if you can call it that, into a much more traditional employment relationship. You may not be employed by a a, a human boss who tells you, you must log on at this time, you must log off at this time. These are your hours of work and these are your conditions. But instead of what you have is an algorithm. And the algorithm determines what you do in a kind of a very intense form of the nudge economy, right? What it does is it offers you incentives and it offers you punishments and penalties, in a sense, shaping your labor in the way that the app wants you to. So when you originally log on, you think, oh, great, what this will do is it will, it will link me to a customer. 
and then I will take that customer in a, in a car to where they want to go and then they will pay me. And that's great. I'll pay a fee to the business as a brokerage fee almost. But in the reality, most of the people who are logging on to these, these apps are not really governed in that way. So some people do, many people do just log on for a few hours a day. But if you actually want to make a living on these apps, as you often have to do these days, you really do need to work full time for them. You need to log on at the times the app wants you to. You need to take the routes that the app wants you to. Most of the cases, if you turn down more than a few routes or more than a few gigs in a row, you can be suspended. You can be switched off entirely. You have to meet the certain requirements for uh, customer ratings and so on, which is effective. These are effectively the mechanisms by which you are employed normally, right? The only difference is the responsibility to, to pay you and, and give you the benefits. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What were the most stressful types of gig work, the most dangerous ones that you encountered when you were doing these interviews? I think almost without fail, the most stressful is delivery riding, and particularly in countries where uh, the infrastructure is poor and the, the algorithms are particularly demanding. So I think the worst that we saw by, any, by a long stretch was India. To be a delivery rider in India, particularly in the monsoon season, is, is very dangerous it's very poorly paid. And it's also, because of the relatively low barriers to entry, very competitive in the sense that there are a lot of drivers bidding for the small number of gigs, which means that you have to you know, hustle. Most of the people that we spoke to are saying, you know, routinely saying, well, the algorithm tells me how long it takes me to get from A to B. It maybe doesn't take into account the rain. So the only way for me to, to meet my target and not get penalized on the app is to go up a one-way street or to dodge the you know, go through every red light and and the accident rate is high and we hear just quite horrific stories on that. And in the gig economy, you're often relying on the ratings customers give you in order to get future work, as you say, that's fed into the algorithm. People with higher ratings are offered more jobs. People with lower ratings are offered fewer ones. And there are all sorts of more complicated subtleties of the algorithm that kick in as well. What effect does that have? It's something I've always been very uncomfortable with giving ratings for anyone, even an Uber driver, or it just, it just seems fundamentally something I'm unhappy with. But clearly, it's something we've become very used to now. What impact do you think it's having on the industry? Well, I think this is, this is a, one of the most important questions that gig economy companies that the regulators have to actually look at. So one of the things that we really think about when we cover technology, particularly in these, this era of big data and machine learning and algorithmic management, is how technology encodes prejudice and privilege. So what seems like a relatively straightforward and almost innocent interaction between you and your driver, you and your rider, can actually be very heavily weighted based on the privileges that you have, the privileges that society at large has. So an example we could give would be in a country, let's say in South Asia, where there is a structural prejudice against women in the workplace. There's particularly a, a, a prejudice against women who are operating in, in a workplace that is considered by that society or many in that society to be a masculine space. So, for example, driving a car. You, as a female driver, 
will experience, on average, much lower ratings than a male colleague. The reason being that a proportion of the people who are rating you just don't want you to be there. That means, unless you in some way uh, recalibrate your algorithm, that women, women in the workplace in these platform economies will almost always suffer worse ratings, which means they will get paid less. They will get worse jobs. And those worse jobs may, may actually involve putting them in more danger. So there is an encoded prejudice in what appears to be a very straightforward mechanism. Um, that's one very, very profound thing that we found, and we see this quite, quite systematically across almost every country we covered. The other one is a little bit, seems again a little bit more innocent, is tipping. So one of the major interactions that you may have with, with the person who just sort of drops off your, your food at the doorway is whether or not you ever tip to them. Now again, it feels innocent in the same way that in a restaurant it would feel relatively straightforward and innocent until you understand that a large proportion of that person's earnings come from tips. Now the tips allow the company to in some way devolve what the person deserves to pay paid to the, the rider. And that does happen in the hospitality sector, right? But we've done quite a lot, certainly in Europe, to try and prevent the kind of tipping as a, as a way to top up to, to the minimum wage. That's not allowed anymore. But it very much is in the gig economy. You're allowed to sort of almost blame the rider for what the user thinks of them and hence, you know, remunerate them less. Again, that comes encoded with privilege and comes encoded with prejudice. So these are things that you know, really do kind of live within the gig economy. They really are, in actual fact, structural to it and something that we need to figure out. I can imagine as well that for women in the gig economy, it's not just a question of lower ratings, which, by the way, extends right across the board. If you look at the way teachers are rated at universities, women are consistently rated lower than men for doing fundamentally the same job. To think about the benefits which women in full-time employment have, usually in many countries, maternity leave, for example, often just do not exist, do they, in the, in the gig economy? Absolutely. And even, even more basic prejudices which, which exist or discrimination which exists within it. So some of those, those benefits which we have certainly accrued in, in the West, in developed countries, haven't necessarily been matched in developing countries yet. We also see, though, at a more kind of day-to-day quotidian level, women in almost every country in the world have this experience, what one of our researchers called uh, differential time poverty. Effectively, they have higher expectations of them at home. There is a certain expectation that they, that they take more care of children, that they have certain domestic duties. Now, that is also encoded into the gig economy in the sense that, as we spoke about earlier, there is an assumption when you sign into these platforms that you work based on the timing that the algorithm gives you. If you aren't able to do that, you are disadvantaged in that workplace. If you're a female driver of a, of a tuk-tuk in Sri Lanka, as we had, and you have children, you have to log off at a certain time because there is an expectation that you do that. But that means you earn less. And not only do you, you don't just earn less in a kind of linear proportion, you earn less because you then fail to get the incentives which actually push your wages up higher. So you're facing discrimination, even at that most basic level, before we get to the, the, the reality that there's no, there's no possibility of maternity leave when you are not employed by the company. These jobs are still really badly paid. And I'm thinking here of the UK, because this is a point of comparison that a lot of listeners will be able to understand. So if you're looking at, for example, Wheezy, which is fairly new venture capital funded startup, delivers anything you want grocery wise to your home within a short space of time. As a Wheezy moped or bike rider, you earn £10 an hour. That's across the board. That's in Manchester, that's in London, both places. And that's a lot of nights and weekends as well. Not normal hours, because naturally people want these kind of deliveries at antisocial hours. Given that the national living wage is going to be 
950 from next year. Is this going to be remotely sustainable? Given the pressure on wages that we're seeing at the moment and the shortage of people to do difficult, demanding, badly paid jobs, we're even seeing now, I think, a fall off in people using Uber because black cabs are getting progressively cheaper because Uber is, because of the things which it's being forced to implement, is putting up prices somewhat. Have we built a gig economy that relies on what low wages that we just cannot sustain? And is that a good thing in the end? Well, I think you've, you've, you've hit on, on half of it. So they're propelled by two things. At least they have been in the last, in the last sort of five to ten years, right? So on one end, they're propelled by, as you say, the availability of a workforce with low expectations, maybe I'll call it that, rather than a low-wage workforce, a workforce that is, that is willing or has to work in those situations, right? And we can talk about the sustainability of that in a second, because the other thing that they're propelled by is capital. Right? These business models have evolved by flooding the market with cash. So you pick a winner, you get as much venture capital as you can, and you grow, and you throw as much money at growth as you possibly can. So that means subsidizing the rides. It means the rides are cheap. It means subsidizing the drivers because you need the drivers on the platform. So the best time to use any platform is in the first six months because what's basically happening is wealth redistribution. You're taking money out of the venture capitalists and going and getting, getting cheap stuff. But as you see with all of these businesses, as they begin to tighten, both sides start to suffer. So the wages go down or they get as many people on the platform as possible, allowing them to distribute the rides less, less to, 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 to more people Riders get fewer rides, everyone earns less. But at the same time, the prices go up. The reason for that is that they haven't settled on a sustainable model yet. Now, some of these companies will tell you, we are profitable. And that's true in narrow levels of profitability. Or they will tell you, well, we don't, we're not profitable because we're reinvesting our profits. But it's very hard to say whether that's true or not. Because when these companies do finally go into the public markets, you saw this with Uber, you saw this with, um, with Deliveroo, they don't necessarily do very well. When public markets put them under scrutiny, the business model starts to look a bit shakier. So we have to ask, what is the long-term sustainable model for this? Is it further squeezing the worker so that the workers effectively subsidize the business for the users? Or is it simply making the users pay more? I suspect it's probably going to end up being the latter and Uber rides will increase in value in price. But then if they're if they were never competitive on price with the black cab in the first place, why have we gone through all this disruption? And I think that's my question, is if we, if we start to pull down economies to prove a model, and at the end of it, the model proves, is proven not to be necessarily that much better, why have we gone through all this? Because a lot of people have suffered. Is there an ethical way of using these on-demand apps? I don't know. I don't know. Now, we've seen some, some companies come up, and I don't want to speak to them specifically because I haven't really looked into their models. But you are seeing worker-owned cooperatives, which are, which are sort of working in very local areas. You've seen some, I think, in North London. It's absolutely possible. It's absolutely possible to do this. I mean, in a sense, you know, one would hope that the next generation of these companies looks at the business models that have been created and looks at the markets that have been created and says, okay, there's definitely demand for food delivery here. There's definitely demand for, you know, linking restaurants up with customers. But how do we do that in a way that the restaurant doesn't suffer, that the driver, that the workers don't suffer? In a sense, and I'm not talking about this in a sort of revolutionary, the workers must be empowered sense, just basically respecting the rules, the spirit of the rules that, that, that Western countries in particular have put in place over decades. These are, these are hard-won rights, and they're not just there for political reasons. They're there because society as a whole 
thinks that they work. You know, we, we give people a certain degree of uh, of social security. We give, you know, we expect a certain degree of remuneration for work because those things are good for society as a whole. So if you look at the basic rules and say, okay, we can do this if we pay the workers a minimum wage, if we, um, you know, pay, pay taxes, if we don't squeeze the restaurants through promotions and high fees. And at the end of that calculation, you say, okay, we can do that, but we'll charge that we have to charge the uh, customer £10 for the delivery. And then test the model on that basis. And if the customer is willing to pay it, then the model works. If the customer isn't and you have to squeeze down the chain, then maybe the model isn't viable. And on that fairly positive note, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag. Bunker up. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy the bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.